Well, last week, we had the privilege of celebrating five years of God's faithfulness to us as a community here in Streamwood. We sang and we prayed, we sat under the word of God, and we ate, we laughed, and we cried, and we remembered. We remembered and we celebrated the stories of those that the Lord has called into this local body of believers in Streamwood. Those the Lord has called into and out of this familia over years. Over and over again, God calls us to do just this in his word, to remember. To remember his commands, to remember who we are, to remember who he is, to remember his faithfulness, what he did and what he promises to do. There's, there's something sacred about remembering. And almost just as much as remember, the Word of God actually also warns us not to forget. It gives us testimonies of those who forgot. We need to be reminded to remember because it is so easy for us to forget. We are so prone to forget, so prone, like the song says, to leave the God we love because we forget what He is like, especially especially in the moments of chaos and and transition and, and, and change and uncertainty. We forget... And we forget to remember in these moments of chaos because in the middle of spinning out about the present, we ignore the past. Whether we mean to or not, we say with our uncontested worries and our unchallenged fears and concerns that the past is somehow irrelevant to our present. In the dizzy after effects of frustration, our memories are flooded with present doubts and suspicions rather than past confidence and conviction. We step off the merry-go-round after a particularly chaotic season and we struggle to maintain our balance, finding our footing not on the solid ground of God's character and his word and his actions. Instead, we stumble with some kind of perpetual Christian vertigo. And we never really stop spinning out. This morning, what if I told you that the steady ground that your heart is stumbling to find is available not in something new, but in someone eternal? What if I said that the solution to the vertigo of life is not in some new practical lifestyle change or productivity schedule or increased vacation time just to get some time away, but in old paths that are well-worn by fellow stumblers who found found the one who, who steadied them, not a particular situation that was steady all the time. Let me show you what I mean by going to the Word of God. This morning, our text is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. There's a bunch in the back. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one of those. Um, If you're watching us at home, we are glad that you're here, and we want you to join us and participate with us in reading the Bible. So why don't we all stand as we read from Genesis 12, 1 through 9. That means you two on the screen. People of God, this morning we come to the Bible stumbling and unsteady, looking for stability, and I pray that these God-breathed scriptures would stabilize you today. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they they set out for the the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem, and at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, being Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is God's word. You may be seated. The story of Abram, later renamed Abraham, is familiar to many of us who might have grown up in church, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. But if you didn't grow up in church, stories like this don't make a whole lot of sense. And let's be honest, even if we did grow up in church, when you actually read these stories, you find out that they are just weirder and deeper than these Sunday school songs led you to believe. This morning, we enter a text that is actually central to the book of Genesis, that is central to the beginning of the people of God. And it's actually a text that's going to course through the rest of Scripture with all of its ups and downs, all the way towards a Savior that is sent by God to make everything wrong and to right. And so we step into the story of Abram right at the beginning, looking for the God who stabilizes. And what we'll find is that stability is not so much about unchanging circumstances, but an unchanging God. This is a story of faith-filled obedience, world-changing revelation, and a life that responds in worship. And the story in these nine verses actually breaks down into two scenes that I'm just labeling the call and obedience. God's call to Abram and Abram's obedience to that call. And these two scenes, they combine to communicate all sorts of eye-opening realities about who God is and who we are and how history has unfolded. There are, there are tons of books written about this particular passage. But for us this morning, I want us to see how these scenes work together to articulate the relationship between faith, obedience, and the promises of God. To put it another way, one of the truths that the story lays before us this morning that we're going to be focused on is that faith-filled obedience fixes its eyes on God's promises. Faith-filled obedience fixes its eyes on God's promises. Faith requires obedience in order to be true faith. But obedience is only faithful if it is locked onto the promises of God. Not the promises we hope he makes or think he makes, but the promises that he actually makes. Faith-filled obedience fixes its eyes on God's promises from Abram to Jesus to us here and now. Let me show you what that looks like from the text. The scene in Genesis 12 begins with a voice from heaven. This, This call of God. A call that actually comes after 11 chapters where we have tracked the the spiral of humanity into the depths of sin and darkness. A call that is generations in the making. Promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, this this call is, is promised and set up all the way from the beginning after the first humans disobey God and introduce sin and death to creation. This promise that God said that one day the seed of the woman, a child or a grandchild or a great, 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 great grandchild from Adam and Eve would crush the snake, the embodiment of evil. Someday, someone would come and start to make things right again. And yet someday came and went as Adam and Eve's firstborn Cain killed his righteous brother Abel. Someday came and went as human after human after human chose rebellion and pride over relationship and humility with God and with each other. Sin had corrupted humanity deeply and from heart to heart to heart 
until one man named Noah showed up on the scene. But then even Noah couldn't escape the damage of sin. After God judged corrupt humanity and saved Noah's family and judged with this flood and saved them through a boat, Noah exits the boat and steps right into sin. I mean, it's not that far after the end of the flood that Noah steps into sin and his sons then follow in his footsteps. Eventually, humanity repopulates the earth and the weeds of sin and and pride and destruction grow alongside them and their sin-sick hearts and in their arrogance, Genesis 11 records that humanity decides to make a name for itself apart from God. They build a tower on this war path with God trying to storm the gates of heaven and reach heaven. And yet God had to come down, I mean all the way down to even see the basic but destructive siege ramp that they had built. Destructive not to God and to his rule, but to them and to all of creation, the creation that God made and God loved You see, trying to make their name great, they were walking the path of destruction. And so God, in his mercy, ends their rebellious project by confusing their languages and scattering them all over creation. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 of a snake crusher is in danger, if not at least in doubt, as humanity starts to thin out and grow internationally. And yet the story is not over, and God is not done and the promise is not actually in jeopardy because there is, there's one family and there, there's one man in that family and there's, there's someone that God has chosen. Look at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. The Lord, God himself, not just any God, but the creator king who made a promise comes down not to see sin but to continue his plan of salvation and he chooses Abram. A man who up until this point in the story hasn't really shown anything worthy of being chosen, anything special. The story doesn't talk about his faith or his loyalty or his achievements or even his wealth. What it talks about is his pedigree. Abram traces his lineage, his family tree, all the way back through Shem, one of Noah's sons, through Noah back to Adam and Eve. And this story is not just trying to keep things nice and neat for the record keepers later, to try to make 23andMe ancient style still work. What it's trying to do is that we might remember the promise that God made that it did not burn out in the darkness of sin. It's trying to remind us that salvation did not drown in the flood, that God is still active and at work and someone is coming. A snake crusher. And maybe, just maybe, it's this Abram guy. God speaks to Abram and commands him to go. Go from everything and everyone you know, leave the world you know and the family you love, and go. This is the first of two commands in this text, which which interrupt Abram and his life in order to turn the world upside down. In order to repair what had been broken, in order to defeat what had invaded creation, for God to make good on his promise and make all the wrong things right. God interrupted Abram. And made no excuse about calling Abram to obedience. God didn't do what what we do normally when we ask someone to do something. He didn't hedge or couch or all the other things that we try to kind of soften the command. God didn't soften his commands, make them easier to swallow. What he does when God does these kind of moments in scripture is that he enables his commands and he makes us able to follow. His commands, his plans, they're rarely comfortable, easygoing, or non-invasive. By design, God interrupts our lives because the lives that he created us to live 
are no longer our default. They're no longer our destination. They're no longer what drives us to, to cultivate and create and live life as God designed it to be lived has actually been distorted and corrupted by sin. And so our default is rebellion. Our destination is destruction and our, and our drive is for self and self alone, which means that any of God's commands by design are interruptive, invasive, uncomfortable. They break into our lives of death and offer us true life, even if at the time he doesn't give us all the pieces. You see, Abram wasn't chosen by God because of Abram's greatness. He was chosen because of God's great grace. And grace doesn't always lay out the entire map. Grace calls us to faith, to faith-filled obedience, where sometimes, and let's be honest, most of the times, only part of the map is visible. And we discover the rest of the map as we step further into obedience. And yet we must always remember that obedience comes after grace. God calls Abram to obedience, but he does so out of his gracious choosing of Abram in the first place. Look at who God is making this command to. This pagan man of 75 years old, verse 4 tells us, a nomad that settled into his life and community even as they're, they're traveling from place to place and in breaks the voice of God to tell him, you know what, I've got another kind of trip planned for you now. God chose him, an unlikely candidate, in order to continue to fulfill his promises, not just to Abram, but to all of creation. And yet, this call is not without its difficulties. Look at what God is telling Abram to do. I want you to abandon, forsake, give up what makes up your identity and your security, your family and your country. And I want you to trust me completely. And the chaos of this change, of this, this transition that the Lord is asking Abram to step into is not going to be calmed or steadied or, or stabilized through normal human support. The only way that Abram will find stability in what God has called him to do is in complete and total dependence on God and God alone. But this is not just a command that God is giving to Abram to go in dependence on God. Like the promise of Genesis 3, this is also a call with promises that depend on God alone. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. I emphasize that on purpose. Go, and I will. Go, so that I will. Go, and I promise to do three things. Make you into a great nation, bless you, and make your name great. Notice that God is the subject of the promises that he makes to Abram. The one who will do as Abram does. God commands, but he also promises. He promises a family who has, uh, just a few verses before, we find out that Sarah is, is barren. She can't have children. A family who has lost hope of having children, more children than they could ever imagine. He promises not only blessing, but very specifically promises the very thing that humanity was searching for when it built a tower to storm the gates of heaven. Only this time, instead of humanity reaching up and taking a great name for themselves, God is going to reach down and make a great name for Abram and his people. By grace, in God's wisdom and according to his timing, the failure of the tower builders in the previous chapter would become the success of God through his faithfulness and humanity's dependence on its creator. So God makes a command and then gives three promises, but he doesn't stop there. Because the promise of blessing then becomes a command for blessing as well. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. And you will be a blessing. 
The first command God gave Abram was to go, and it was backed up by these three promises. But this last phrase is actually a second command of God in the original language. Those are the only two words that are commands in that text. A second command that is set in motion by obedience to the first command. Go and be. Go to where I tell you and be a blessing there. Listen, Abram, you're not just going to go to take, but you're going to go to give. You're not just going as someone who has received, but as someone intent on blessing others, on communicating the life of God to the world. The promise of God has, has appeared up until this point to focus on Abram, but what we find out by verse 2 is, is, is not that it's focused on Abram, but that it's focused through Abram to the world. Go, and you will get all these things. And so often in our lives, we stop there and believe that God's blessing, God's promises, God's good things are meant to stay as me things. That we can be the last stop for God's blessing when here in this passage and all over Scripture, really, God's plans are always to cultivate through ways, highways rather than cul-de-sacs of blessing. To make a road to blessing rather than a parking lot. I want you to pay attention to God's plan here. Go, Abram, and when you go, these are the three things that I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Go, and I will do so that you will be a blessing. And this second command, like the first command, is followed by another three promises that God will fulfill. Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. By this point in the text, it should be clear that blessing is a big deal. I mean, God has repeated it five times in two verses. God has underlined, bolded, italicized, done whatever he had to do to make us see what he is doing. So it's about time I define what it means to be blessed. It's not defined by hashtags and Instagram accounts and the right picture of the right thing at the right time. The blessing of God is being in right relationship with God and with others. It is it's God's intentions and purposes in life being fulfilled in the life of all of his creation. It is the experience of life as God intended it to be experienced. The, the ancient writers called it shalom. We might use the word flourishing now. And here, God promises to bring that about, to be actively involved in and the agent of blessing, not just in Abram's life, but through Abram's life, through Abram's line, this is what God wanted for humanity from the beginning. If you've been reading through Genesis, which I know all of you have this past week, I'm just kidding. If you've been reading through Genesis, when God first creates humanity, the text says in Genesis 1.28, and then again in 5.2, that God blessed them before he gave them a command to do something. And then when he judges creation, saves Noah through the flood, and Noah and his family step off the boat, it feels almost like a reset. And again, the text says in 9.1 that God blessed them. You see, blessing is the intention of God. It has been the intention of God from the very beginning. But now, in the darkness of sin, blessing has become the promise of God. Everything up until this point has increasingly darkened as human after human after human failed to live up to the expectation that they might be the one to crush the snake. But now... Blessing and hope explode into the story with the brilliance of God's promises to Abram and to all of creation. The hope that through Abram, everyone would experience the blessing of God, all the families and nations of the earth. Notice this is an international promise. A promise that is not limited to or stops at Abram and his family, but accomplishes God's purposes only when it reaches all of the families of the earth. God's plan is to bless Abram and his family in order that they would bring blessing to the whole world. 
You see, when God chooses Abram, it's not to exclude people and say, okay, I've chosen you and forget everybody else. It's to, as one theologian writes, work exclusively as a benefit to a world that has no intention of doing what's right. This is a plan that plays out in Scripture, yes, with stops and starts and questions and worries and hope, all the way until the promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who accomplishes salvation for his people. Jesus Christ, who enables right relationship with God and with others and makes possible an actual true blessing in and through the people of God. And you might be going, Eric, I think you skipped a bunch of books in, in, in this Bible. There's a lot of things going on in between that. How can you say that? How can you connect the promises of Genesis 12 all the way to Jesus on the other side of this book? Well, I'll show you how in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Paul actually makes this connection for us. I didn't just think of this this past week. Paul says this, Also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the, the not God's people, by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch what just happened? The promise in Genesis 12, 3 to bless all people through Abram is not just a general promise of blessing. Things are going to go well. It's going to be really nice. You're going to have a lot of people and a nice government. It is a gospel promise. A promise that picks up Genesis 3.15 and the anticipation of this snake crusher and paves the way for Matthew 1.1 and the announcement of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is a promise that is thousands of years in the making and thousands of years in the fulfilling. A promise that began with God's gracious choice of Abram and Abram's trust in God. Abram's faith actualized in obedience. Abram's faith made real and demonstrated by his actions. Like James says in his letter, faith without works is dead. And in Genesis 12, 4 through 9, Abram's faith is very much alive. Because faith-filled obedience actually fixes its eyes on God's promises. And so here, without a plan or a safety net, Abram obeys. He obeys in faith. Holding on to God's promises, this word from God, in faith, he fixes his eyes on those promises and steps out in obedience. And this is where we go to our second scene. The first tells us of God's call on Abram's life, the beginning of how God's people uh, uh, re reacted to God's gracious will and how they started. But the second scene explains how Abram responds. Look at verse 4. Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, and his, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. God told him to go, so he went. Immediately and without question, Abram obeys God, abandons his larger family in order to worship God in the land that God promised him. This is the starting point of God's people. It's also the example of and model for God's people. It's a reminder that God is the one who started everything, that he is the one who chose them, and he chose them for a purpose, to be blessing to everybody. And so, people of God, there is no room for arrogance that's, that, that centers and is fueled by some kind of earned special status. Instead, there's only humility with an unearned special status. There's a true understanding of the purpose of that status, that it is to bless others, not hoard blessing for yourselves. 
But truly grasping that means that the people of God must follow in Abram's footsteps of faith-filled obedience. Let me do some math here. The text says, and this is pastor math, but I think it's right. I checked it a couple times. The text says Abram is 75 years old when he leaves home. In the previous chapter, we learned that Terah, Abram's father, was 70 when Abram was born and 205 when he died. I can't explain that. That's just what happened. But it means that Abram left his father's house, his family, his security, 60 years before his father died. Not just a few years before he died and not even a few years after he died. Not as some kind of natural time of transition when things were uncertain, but in the middle of stability and security when sons were supposed to stay and help their fathers build up the family. Translation, Abram chose obedience over loyalty especially when it was the hardest to obey. We all know that there are times when it's easy to obey and times when it's hard to obey. Right? When we obey and say, ah, I was going to go there anyways, or I was going to do that anyways. I love when my daughter tells me, I tell her to do something, and she does it, but on the way there, she says, Daddy, I was going to do that anyways. It's not like you made me. That was my choice. That's when it's easy to obey. It's a lot harder to obey when you want to go right and someone tells you to go left. Abram decided that when the creator God and judge of the universe told him to do something, he would do it. He would obey, even when what God told him to do was something that, apart from God, had little to no certainty of success. In fact, in the next few verses, we actually see that God is the only one who could possibly guarantee success for something so outrageous. And this is how faith functions, an obedience, an unquestioning obedience to God. Obedience that demonstrates trust in God, faith in who he is and what he promises. Obedience that banks on the promises of God, even in uncertainty, that steps into times of transition and change with confidence, not in human ability, but in God's character, his faithfulness, his promises. Faith is empty if it is not filled by obedience, filled out by obedience, even when it is scary. Look at verse 6. Abram traveled to the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah and Shechem. At that time... The Canaanites were in the land. God calls Abram to go, so he goes. And when he stands at the border of the promised land, and he sees, God, there are people living here. This isn't an uninhabited place that you've just invited me to kind of stake my claim on. There are cities and landmarks and, and, and people walking around. The tension in the story starts to grow because receiving God's promises is not about to be some kind of walk in the park. Something has to happen, and something does. Look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. You see, God shows up and reminds Abram of the promise. Remember how easy it is for us to forget. I don't know why Abram needed this, but instead of just repeating his promise to Abram like he did in the first place, verbally connecting with him and just saying, Hey, remember what I told you? God decides to actually show up in Abram's life in that moment. I mean, I mean he... He appears and he connects with Abram in person and reminds him of his promise. And reminds him that his promise comes with his presence. I will be the one to give this land to your family. And so Abram responds. The text says he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Like Noah before him, Abram builds this, this place of worship, this declaration of his allegiance to God, this reminder to him and to all who would hear the story later that this is where Abram encountered God. But that's only the beginning, because from there, Abram went on toward these hills east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with 
Bethel on the west, I on the east. And there again, he builds an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then the text says in verse 9, Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. You see, Abram sets up another altar in another location and he calls on the name of God, the name of his God, the name of the one true God in the middle of the people who celebrated and worshipped a bunch of other gods. And I want you to know that he did all this in response to God's promises which have yet to be fulfilled. Nothing has really happened. He showed up at a place and he's walking through a town, but God hasn't given him anything yet. Abram in response to God's promises, worships and preaches. God promised to make Abram's name great, but now Abram is making God's name great, making God's name famous in Canaan as he believes and continues to trust in God to fulfill his promise. Abram not only obeys by going, he also obeys by worshiping because this is how faith worships. Too often, we disintegrate the idea of worship and obeying God, and we forget that obedience is an act of worship. It's how we declare our allegiance to the one true God, how we say that our lives are His, how we proclaim our identity as His people, how we communicate to others the life that God promises by obeying and keeping in step with His design of life, being walking, talking billboards that point people to God. Faith functions in obedience. Faith worships in obedience. Abram obeys God and goes north to south, walks through the land that God has promised him. He sees, he lives in, and worships in what God has promised him, even though it's not actual yet. He trusts that God will make good on his promises. He looks forward to God's promises. God's promises that he would have children and become a nation, receive this land, receive God's protection, and that all of it would be a conduit, a source, a path of God's blessing to the entire world. These are the promises that Abraham looks to as he makes his way end to end, north to south. When it says that he's at the Negev, he's actually at the border of the land of Canaan. And the next chapter says he goes to Egypt. He goes all the way through God's promised land and he worships. And in his faith-filled obedience, Abram fixes his eyes on God's promises. He looks forward to what God will do, what God says he will do in hope. Confident in God's ability, desire, and faithfulness to complete it. Remember, God didn't have to bless Abram. He was not obligated to. It wasn't his duty. God did not call him at the beginning and make promises to him because out of compulsion, this was all an act of God's grace. And I say that again here because if you're going to read the rest of the stories, you will find that not all of the stories that follow this call of Abram are a rosy. Not everything Abraham did was good. In fact, the Bible is painfully honest about Abram's shortcomings. And so understanding that God's call was one of God's grace helps us remember that when Abram messes it up, God's continued faithfulness is actually a mercy. It helps us remember that, that we rightfully relate to God in faith-filled obedience, but our relationship is not cause and effect, at least not how we might think. We don't obey God, and, and then therefore God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us, despite us many times, in obedience and disobedience, and it is his faithfulness that calls us to obedience. His faithfulness that draws faith out of us, that puts faith to action. I'll show you what I mean. We went into the New Testament a little bit this morning, but I'm going to fast forward in this story again and end our time in a passage in the book of Hebrews to help us see why God's call to remember and how this faith-filled obedience of Abram fixing his eyes on God's promises, all of this works to produce God's salvation in Jesus and drive us to that faith-filled obedience. 
Hebrews 11 starts like this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is being confident in hope, being sure of the unseen. Faith is saying, I don't see it yet, but I see you. I see you, God, and I hold on to you, and I am confident in you. That's the kind of faith that runs through the pages of Scripture and the kind of faith that the writer of Hebrews tells us the ancients were commended for, which is why it's so important that we look back at stories like Abram's, Abraham. Not in nostalgia, but to stabilize our vertical when our faith falters, when we worry that the fog that clouds our vision of what God is doing in the world is not just temporary, but actually a temptation to doubt and to despair. The text continues in chapter 11, verse 8 through 10, telling the story of Abram. Here, it's, by this time, he's called Abraham, and it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Like a director's commentary, the writer of Hebrews explains to us what's happening in Genesis 12, which is why I went here in the first place. Abraham exercised faith in the middle of uncertainty, He lived like a stranger in the land that God had promised him, and yet he didn't see the promise fulfilled. Did you catch that? His sons inherit not the promised land, but the promises of God. His son Isaac and his grandson Jacob did the same thing Abraham did. The promise is yet to be fulfilled, but their obedience continues to be faith-filled. Why? Because the text says their confidence in things unseen did not close their eyes to God. Instead, by faith, they look forward to what God was building, what God had designed, a city, security, stability, safety for his people, for all peoples. Abram and his sons looked forward to that, and they obeyed in faith. A few verses later in chapter 11, we read of others like Abraham. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. I mean, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These faith-filled people welcomed God's promise from a distance. They lived life honestly, admitting that they were strangers and and, and foreigners on earth because their true citizenship was in God's city, the city that God was still building. They longed for and dreamed about a better country, a heavenly country, and their faith-filled obedience was not born out of duty but out of longing. They trusted God so much that it became a deep desire for God to fulfill his promises. Hebrews 11 continues to press this point, and I'm going to read all the way through. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, 
refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. Did you catch that? None of them received the promise of God yet. All of these, through the worst of life, operated with a heart and a life that that held tight to and gripped God's promises. They looked forward to what God said he would do, and they held on. Don't get me wrong, they saw glimmers of God's faithfulness as he led them along the way, but the promise he made, the promise of a snake crusher, of a savior who would make everything right and and speak the true word of God and fix not just external evil in the world, but go all the way to the heart and fix the internal evil and corruption that held us captive, this promise was only future for them. They held on to this promise for centuries, and yet none of them received it. But the text says it was because God had planned something better, something for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect, something that connected them then to us now, something that binds Abram to us as he walks through Canaan and builds altars, something that connects him to us as we sit here in worship, something or someone Look at Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. TBC, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. People of God in Jesus, we are bound together, not just to each other, as this new family in this place, but to all of those who witnessed, who testify by their faith, who held on to God's promises and by faith are part of this family of God. These are our brothers and sisters that this is talking about. The call to faith-filled obedience is not empowered by us and our ability to withstand all the things we just read about. It starts with Jesus, which is why this text calls him the pioneer of our faith. And it ends with Jesus. It finds its completion in Jesus, which is why he's called the perfecter of our faith. We no longer need to look forward to God's promises. He has already fulfilled his promises to us in Christ. I read it last week. Every one of God's promises is yes and amen in Jesus. We see God's faithfulness in these stories. We see God's faithfulness to these people, we see them witness that obedience and hope are worth it. 
Because God fulfills his promise to us in Christ, and as we enjoy these promises, we wait for him to come back and and make everything completely right again. We read this call of Abram. We remember that God has always been working out his promises to save us even as we wait. And now that we have Jesus, we persevere in the middle of difficulty and uncertainty because our eyes are not fixed on our circumstances. They're fixed on Jesus. We remember the gospel, this text tells us to do. Jesus endured the cross out of joy. Innocently, he was condemned to death, and his obedience was not reluctant, but loving. He died the death we were supposed to die after living the life that we couldn't live. He endured and turned an object of shame into an object of love. He accomplished all of this and and was exalted to the right hand of God. He not only died for us, but he came back to life for us. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest confirmation of God's promises Remember our text, God appeared to Abram as he walks through the land and he sees the Canaanites and wonders, how in the world is this going to work? So God appears and confirms his promises before Abram. And then thousands of years later, Jesus reappears out of the tomb back to life and confirms his promise to us that all who believe would be saved. People of God, we fix our eyes on Jesus when the world is spinning out in the middle of all kinds of change. Even change within us as a church body, a new senior pastor, a new season for us as a, as a family here as we rebuild and in the middle of a pandemic and political division and racial tension and pain and hurt, in the middle of a, a global refugee crisis and all kinds of suffering globally and locally in the middle of our own uncertainties, we fix our eyes on Jesus in all of this because he is the only constant in sin's chaos. He is our stability He is the one who makes the world right side up and cures our vertigo. We trust in God's promise of salvation in the gospel. We depend on and look forward to the day that he will come back and make everything right again. And we hope in dependence on God. In faith and obedience, with our eyes firmly fixed on God's promise to us in Jesus, that he has already fulfilled it, and that what he starts He finishes. This morning then, as we come to a close and talk about all these things that are supposed to stabilize us as we believe, I'm going to ask you to join me in believing that and proclaiming that belief in dependence on God by praying. And not just praying anything, but praying that he might keep reminding us and by his spirit keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Would you pray with me? Unchanging God, this morning we confess that we look around at our world today and we look at ourselves and all we see and feel is is disequilibrium. We are dizzy from the chaos of this world and the chaos of our hearts. We stumble around in fear and worry and we forget who you are and who we are and what you have said about us. We confess and we pray that you by your spirit would meet our too often faithlessness with your faithfulness. Your word says that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Would you stabilize us and steady us so that our eyes might remain fixed on you? Calm our hearts and embolden our obedience that we might live faith-filled lives, confident in your promises to us in Christ. Not trying to obey so that you would be faithful to us, but trusting in your faithfulness and letting that empower our obedience. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
Before we get to the benediction at the end of our service, I I, want to celebrate two people in our church who have lived out the reality that Jesus is Lord and King in so many different ways. And the, the reason we're doing this, the reason we're celebrating these two people in particular, is because this morning we are also sending them out to love and to serve our larger church family, to do what they do so amazingly here, all across our campuses. So Bill and Jennifer Westring, can you come up on the stage? This morning, we get the privilege and joy of celebrating how God has been faithful and continues to be faithful to us as a church family. And I say that because this morning, we commission and send out these two servants of God to serve at our West Chicago campus. And I want to celebrate both of them for very specific reasons. So you're going to have to endure this for a little bit, or maybe celebrate with me, I hope. Because Jennifer, I wanted you to stand before your church family so that you might see all the lives that the Lord has allowed you, graciously given you the chance to not only touch, but change for his glory. And they're good. And I wanted you to stand, go ahead. There are a lot here. There are so many more that are bouncing in classrooms back there, and so many that the Lord has sent out from this place, and I want this church family to also see you, to thank you, and to know that they have also been a pivotal, they have also been pivotal in shaping you, not just as a minister, but as a Christian, as a woman of God, that they have been part of your journey just as much as you have been a part of theirs. And we are grateful that the Lord gave us you, and gave you us, I don't know how to say that. I don't know English. Now, y'all may not know this, but Jennifer has been here since the very beginning. So in my uh, language, uh, Jennifer is OG, right? She's been absolutely important in setting all of this up. She's been incredible in how much she loves God, how much she loves people, how much she loves this church family, how much she loves family and children, and just all of the things that she brings into this space. You, You guys don't even know how much love she has for this place and these people. And there are a lot of stories here. I don't have time to recount the stories. The blessings of Jennifer serving this family and this family serving Jennifer. But I also don't have time to recount the blessings of having Bill in this space as well. And I told him I was going to do this. And he says, ah, you don't have to do that for me. But I want you to know, I don't know how many of you know, how much Bill has been a crucial part of our church family here. Bill has served in in so many roles here, he could probably run this all by himself if he wanted to. He's he's been crucial here, and and he does it not because he wants people to know, but because he loves Jesus and he loves this church, this church family. And and all these families, kids' life, these kids have been loved and served dearly by, by Jennifer, but also by Bill serving in the background often. Bill, my brother, I am grateful for how the Lord has used you here. And I wanted you to be up here so that this church knew how grateful we are for the way that you have loved and served his people here. Thank you. And Jennifer, thank you. Now, Jennifer, I asked Jennifer if she wanted some time and space to say a few words. I don't know if she's going to get through all of this. She also told Bill that he would have to read it if she couldn't get through it. Go ahead, Jennifer. Your turn. I am totally going to read this. (laughs) When I came to Chai Village, uh, my desire was to share the love of Jesus with families. Little did I know how much I would learn from you about the love of Jesus. You gladly jumped in to help when you saw a need, 
You encouraged me with your words. You shared your griefs and joys. And you prayed for me. Mm. I am a better person because you shared the love of Jesus with me. And the families at the West Chicago campus will reap the benefits of what you have taught me about the love of Jesus. And as Ava moves into this position, you are in good hands because Ava loves Tri-Village and she loves Jesus. And I am also confident that Ava is in good hands (laughs) as you show her Jesus by jumping in when there's a need by encouraging her with your words, by sharing your griefs and joys with her, and by praying for her. So thank you, Tri-Village, for loving me so well and for teaching me how to love others so well. Amen. Get this mic away from me. Jennifer, we are grateful. And, and as you share your gratitude, we also want to give this gift to you. This is a picture of a bunch of the little ones that the Lord has put into this space right now with a particular verse that we prayed over you at our staff meeting this past Tuesday. And I want you to remember, not just these lives you have touched, but there are so many not even pictured here. And we are grateful. Now, TVC, would you stand? We're going to pray as a commissioning for sending her out before I send the benediction for all of us. But if you haven't had time to express your thanks and your gratitude to these two, I would encourage you to stop them on the way out, accost them, harass them, tell them how much you love them, how much Jesus loves them, express your gratitude for what the Lord has done in and through them. But let's pray together as we send them out. Faithful God, we are um, just so grateful for how you have worked in and through Bill and Jennifer here in our church family. Like we sang, we we look back and we've seen your faithfulness in their lives and our life as a community because of your Spirit's work through them. And so now we look ahead to what you are going to do through them. We believe in you for their ministry and their lives, and we know that you are not only able, but that you finish what you started, that you will see it through to completion, and that even now you are at work making Bill and Jennifer look more like Jesus and making the people that you put in their path look more like Jesus because of them. We trust you for them and for this next season in their lives. And Lord, we trust you for us and for this next season in our lives and our family with our children through the ministry and service of Ava. Lord, we, we, we just want to say over and over again that we trust you in all of this. We trust your name in everything. Amen and amen. Well, people of God, would you receive this benediction from Hebrews 12, 1 through 3? TVC, since we are surrounded, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in history and here in this space right here, right now, may we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see, would you this week consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you might not grow weary and lose heart? You are sent out this morning, confident in God's promises, obedient to God's call in your life, 
to be a blessing to everyone he puts in your life because of the gospel. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. Your Savior goes before you. You are sent.